Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Eggshells Podcast Companion. My name is Chris Charlton, and this is an audio companion to Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome,、uh, a book that goes through every single pro wrestling event. That happened in the Tokyo Dome. And in this podcast, we go a little bit more extra in depth、uh, with a special guest every episode looking at each year of Tokyo Dome history.、Uh, this year, we're looking at 1992, and joining me is a true polymath, I suppose、um, a, an actor, an author, a fighter, an MMA historian, which is a great help to me.、Uh, Paul Lazenby, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks very much for having me on.、Um, so,、uh, yeah, you're going to really sort of help with、uh, the second of our two cards, I think, on, on this show, because、um, you are,、uh, of course, with your martial arts history,、uh, much, much more sort of in tune to that world than, than me. And、um, I'm looking forward to hearing some talk about Suzuki and Fanaki as well. Yeah, it,、uh, you, you don't have to push me too hard to get me to talk about the,、uh, the glory days of Japanese shoot fighting, man. That was, I remember very shortly after I got into professional wrestling, and、uh, my friend Dr. Luther showed me a UWFI tape in 1992, and I, I was hooked immediately. So I absolutely love that era, and I love talking about those guys. Um, so, talking about、uh, 1992, so this was、oh, what was going on in January 1992, because our first show was the first、um, January the 4th. New Japan show.、Um, and they've run it on January the 4th every year since. But、um, around in the news in early 1992, this was、uh, pulled right before a very famous incident in a, a sort of Japanese American uh, relations. Uh, does that ring a bell to you at all?、Uh, why don't you fill me in? Because it, I've been hitting the head a lot. So I'm sure once, <laughs> once, well, once、yeah. you give me a tip, I'll, I'll know what you're talking I was far too young at the time to, to remember, at, at eight years old or whatever. But like,、um, yeah, right after the first January 4th show in the Tokyo Dome, on January the 7th, George Bush Sr.、Uh, oh, vis- yes. visited Japan and during a state dinner, he threw up all over、uh, Miyazawa, who was the, the prime minister at the time. And, an incident that actually got. Sort of verbed and entered into the Japanese lexicon as、uh, bush sudu, which means to do a bush、uh, in terms of like、uh, grand public embarrassment. But,、um, yes. I had no idea that it actually became a term, but yeah, I remember that blowing up huge. I mean, now it's uh, uh, people are kind of used to presidential buffoonery in the modern era, but back then that was a huge gaffe. And, and yeah, I remember that、uh, being a very big thing over here too. <laughs> What was your sort of uh, uh, relationship, I guess, to sort of MMA, pro wrestling, and Japan at the time? You mentioned、uh, UWFI,、um, but you were kind of out here more sort of a little bit later on, like 96, 97, is that right? Yeah, that's correct.、Uh, I, I never intended on being a fighter, but、uh, the, I, I got into professional wrestling in 1991. I went to Calgary and I trained at the Hart Brothers camp with Lance Storm and Chris Jericho. And、uh, very quickly during my training, made the acquaintance of、uh, Dr. Luther, who's, who's one of the absolute greatest talents to be overlooked by the big companies on this side of the ocean. But、uh, he was a very big thing in FMW from his debut in 1992, I believe that was. And he came back、uh, from Japan with some VHS tapes, and one of which had a UWFI card on it. Now, remember, this is the year before the UFC debuted, this is the year before Pancras started. So, MMA was something that was a very foreign concept to pretty much everybody in Canada. And、uh, I still remember watching a Gary Albright versus、uh, Nobuhiko Takada match. And、uh, at the time, I didn't even know enough to know it was a worked match because it was so brutal. But being immediately captivated by the fact that, oh my God, there, there are these guys who can punch and kick and knee and grapple all in the same, same fight. So right away, I just started absorbing as much. Mixed martial arts related knowledge as I could because I, I, I just, the idea completely、uh, wrapped me up and captivated me. And I think probably negatively affected my pro wrestling career in a way because I was more enthralled with shoot style and shoot product than I was with the worked product and、uh, put more of my attention in that direction. Mm hmm. But、uh, before the, well, one of our cards today will be like the Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, the、uh, 1992 Tokyo Dome Show stack of arms there. But first, Before that, we had、uh, Cho Senshi in Tokyo Dome, the, the Super Warriors、uh, card, a card that was headlined by Rick Choshu and Tatsumi Fujinami.、Uh, 
um, for the the greatest eighteen and IWGP championships. But uh, but before that, I mean, we were talking. Um, what we tend to do on this podcast is uh, our guest brings a, a talking point or a particular person or a particular match uh, to talk about on the show, and uh, so. Me asking Paul Lazenby, what what would you be into? What what takes your fancy on this card? And uh, you you went straight for the horses on this one. Yeah, the, the, the... <laughs> yeah, the big dudes, and uh, that's you know it kind of flies in the face of what I just said about being being uh, and uh, captivated by shoot style stuff and technical fighting. Uh, my first high level competitive sports were strongman and powerlifting. So uh, I was also when I got into wrestling drawn to people like Doug Furness and and all the big giant hoss guys as well, like. Scott Norton, like Vader, like uh, people along those lines. So, uh, yeah, we definitely had our share of them here, but I was laughing because you've got Scott Norton, Shinya Hashimoto, who you could arguably call a Haas wrestler because because at at his biggest, he was a large guy, and uh, Big Van Vader, three of the the best big men ever, and they're all paired up with people who, uh, if I'm going to put it charitably, are rather challenged in the talent department. So uh, it was almost like they deliberately set out to sandbag their best big men with uh, by making them all drag anchors around the ring. I don't think like Vader versus Elegante. Like Elegante was was not exactly in Nobuhiko Takada. Like, <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. And and uh, Hashimoto versus Kazmaier. I mean, I I don't want to be too cruel here because I, I met Mr. Kazmaier once, and uh, I, he was very nice to me personally. But uh, really. If Shinya Hashimoto can't get a good match out of you, then just quit the business. And uh, by I think all accounts, he did, didn't he? Like, not too long after this, I, I, he did manage to get one out of Kaz after this because this, this, to my recollection, was horrible. Yeah, yeah, but no, I meant the. I think Kaz like quit the business. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think he was probably hassled out of the business. You know, everybody, uh, by everybody I talked to or or here talking about Kazmaier who knew him through pro wrestling. Apparently, he just made himself a target and was relentlessly ribbed to the point that I think he finally took his ball and went home. Oh, well, like, I, it's strange looking at this, though, because, like, I kind of thought that the, the Kazuma Hashimoto thing was probably the WCW connection at the time, because this was one of the shows where um, there would be sort of WCW versus New Japan matches or like with Vader Aligante, it was more WCW versus WCW matches that were specific. They were on the card just so that they could be taped and then sent to America for like the American pay-per-view. So this would be like the WCW New Japan super show or whatever Mm. um, on pay-per-view, which was like a really heavily edited down um, bunch of matches. And that's where you had like, you know, sting on top of, um, on top of that version of the card. But like this Kazmaier Hashimoto match didn't even make that cut of the show. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of baffling as to why it was there at all. Um, but like I with Vader, su- yeah, I'm gone. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a WCW move because they made a lot of baffling decisions when it came to Kazmaier. One of which was when they had the uh, battle bowl lethal lottery where they would randomly pair up to wrestle quote unquote randomly pair up two yeah. wrestlers in tag teams and, and uh, throw them into matches. And they paired him with Liger. I, <laughs> were, were you angry with Liger over something that you made him drag Kazmaier around as a tag team partner? It just made no sense. And makes Kaz look even worse because now you're juxtaposing him with one of the greatest guys ever. <laughs> what that, um, that almost ties in with what I was going to say next. It's like Vader and Elegante, uh, which was very clearly for for. The, the WCW audience, they put LIGO on commentary for it. What? Um, <laughs> so, so you're going like, why, why is Vader on, on commentary for, for this Vader Alicante match? Just this match. Um, and it's like, it's about a six, like nine, you know, I watched it at New Japan World. It's like a nine minute video file plus entrances or whatever. Um, and about four four minutes of this probably six minute match bell to bell is them just interviewing like here and like is going <laughs> oh oh yeah yeah i just came from wcw at the end of 91 i i won the light heavyweight championship from brian pillman we had a 15 minute match and it's like that's probably the match that most people wanted to watch <laughs> <laughs> yeah i, I think it, 
if you ever talk to a wrestling fan, you give them the choice of Pillman versus Liger or Gigante versus Vader, and they choose the latter, tell them to find something else to watch from now on because they don't know what they're talking about. Well, they got in and out kind of quite fast. Um, there was a couple of splashes in the ropes, and then the, they, they counted the both out. And then, you know, really, it was it was up to the... It was this Liger interview, and then after that, it was the sort of standard, oh, Alicante's pans are like frying pans. And then... Um, and then it was just, oh, coming up next, folks, it's it's Hase versus Inoki. Like, you know, we know why you're actually here. Like, that's coming up next after commercial. You know? Yeah, please sit through this so you can get to the good stuff later, folks. <laughs> what was your take? Because, I mean, you have, like, Japanese MMA and, and Inoki has his, his part to play in, in that history, obviously. Like, what was your awareness of Antonio Inoki around sort of 1992 time? Well, I'm I'm quite old, so I actually remember being a kid when Inoki fought Ali. So mm-hmm. I, I had some understanding of him. Now, my father had a very disdainful view of professional wrestling. So I grew up for uh, a lot of my young life thinking that Inoki was just a con man and, and a completely fake fighter and no talents whatsoever. And then uh, around 91, when I really started researching wrestling because I, I, I had gotten into the business, I, I started realizing that he was actually a, a, a capable shooter and, and a tough guy and a, and a dude who really deserves some credit in uh, knocking down certain barriers uh, to build what MMA is today. Uh, so at the time, uh, around 1992, I, I was just starting to form more of a respectful view of Antonio Inoki. And also, I had already realized that he was essentially the Hulk Hogan of Japan. So within a purely worked context... I knew him to be a legend, but I, I was starting to understand that you know he, he deserved his due as a shooter as well. Yeah, it's interesting, like sort of looking at around sort of 88, 89, uh, perhaps 90, when like the second generation of UWF was, was in that mix. And Inoki at the time wanted to have an MMA sub-brand to, to New Japan, where there was like uh, Seiji Sakaguchi was... Um, more sort of pro wrestling oriented and especially when everybody left kind of again to to go to UWF had a very sort of distinct allergy towards um martial arts but like Inoki was pulling people aside kind of saying well we've got this deal with the Russians you know why don't we send you know this when Minoru Suzuki was was still around like why don't I send you out to to Russia you can learn sambo for a bit and then come back and and we'll we'll give this sort of MMA pro wrestling thing a go you know in where that was very much kind of the zeitgeist it would have been interesting to see how that would have turned out uh for mma at large as well like had had he not been shut down you know yeah that's a great question to roll around in your head because it makes you wonder how he would have uh what he would have done differently from from guys like sayama who ended up blazing the trail later or uh or maida uh if if he would have done something relatively similar or if you would have taken it in a completely different different direction yeah and this was kind of at this point he was semi-retired this was when we were starting to get towards the the final countdown of antonio noki which was really a sort of four or five year retirement tour (laughs) an amazing thing to happen and you had kind of uh inoki against uh hiroshi hase in this match to me like hase is one of the most sort of no, I wouldn't say underrated because it's sort of kind of held in high regard, but but one of your one of the best guys to never win like a, a big championship in in Japan. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree. I, I I always thought of Hase as kind of like a swashbuckler type. He always reminded me of a musketeer or like a dashing rogue. Um, he he definitely uh, had superstar charisma. You know, I, even before I could tell most of the Japanese wrestlers apart when I, when I first started watching Japanese wrestling, I do remember identifying Hase right away uh, after the first time I saw him. Yeah. And this was like immediately after <clears throat> or kind of during uh, Hase having his feud with uh, Keiji Muto as a, as a great muter. So like you had those two huge blade jobs that have gone down in, in history, you know, the, the muter mm-hmm. scale is, is still a thing um, of just the amount of bloodshed in those matches. And that, that really sort of put, uh, Hase over the over the edge, um, and they they got to Hase versus Inoki because um, Hase wrestled uh, Taikajit Singh in a, an an empty island match 
pole, not not an empty arena match. <laughs> this yeah, was... I remember thinking uh, Antonio or uh, uh, Asushi Onita did the first one of those because I saw the FMW equivalent and. Uh, yeah, then when I started digging, I, I realized, oh, this is a bad idea that actually has a history. Yeah, yeah, Inoki had the first one, so this was in tribute to to that. And like, um, I haven't seen the second one actually, but I did. I kind of skimmed through the first one because the first one is two hours long. Um, oh, good lord! And it's obviously it's it's deathly silent, you know, apart from the arena, apart from the announcers. Like it's it's literally you know Ganujima, it's a completely empty island. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, then this was a more condensed, I think, 75 minutes during digging was, was this Taikiji Singh match. And um, it looks like uh, Minoru Suzuki is going to probably have one um, in a couple of years or so because like, Sanjiro Takagi wants to wrestle Minoru Suzuki on, a, on an empty island. You know what? If anybody can make that idea work, it's Minoru Suzuki. You know, I, I, he's done the empty arena match and, uh, and uh, uh, knocked it out of the park. I just... It just I am so happy to see that guy at the age of 49 just advancing to a whole new level in his career creatively mm. uh, and uh, and becoming a, a megastar in later life. You know, I, usually when you see a, a wrestler in their mid 40s or late 40s, they come across as they're just wringing the last drops out of their career and, and they're coasting on on the fumes of what they used to be. Uh, whereas Suzuki just seems to get better every year, which is crazy because I'm his age and I understand what it's like to accumulate the bumps and bruises. And yet, you know, he, he doesn't seem to be missing a step. Just like such versatility. You know, I don't think there's there's anybody that can do as much as he can, you know, and, and do it so convincingly. Um, the... Especially for a, a guy with a shooter reputation. And uh, he somehow manages to come across as a shooter who has this disgust and disdain for workers mm. and yet be a great worker within the context of getting that across and yeah. tell a great story. You know? and, and he can do comedy and somehow it doesn't hurt his aura of being an incredibly dangerous and scary guy. And he can, he can do all these different styles as I, I just, he, he just seems to add something to his repertoire every year. I, I was having this exact same conversation with with Kevin Kelly, and like he was telling me, you know, that Kevin was telling me that Suzuki still intimidates him, and I'm I'm still like, no matter how many I haven't met Minoru Suzuki in person, but like every time I know people that have, and he's always I know how gracious he is and how nice he is, and how every time you you see him like mugging for for selfies with with everybody you you've i've seen him like you know beat up a, a giant cardboard robot you know in, in the mm. ring or whatever and yet i if i were to met him i would still be terrified to you know no he has that legitimate shooter aura and and actually uh well if you don't mind i've told this story elsewhere but uh i i do have a minoru suzuki story from when i was living in the pancras dojo yeah uh i was as i said i was a fan of of Japanese shoot style. And so I became aware of Pancrase at a time where very few people in Canada even knew where it was uh, uh, or what it was that I would, again, this is, we're talking 95, 96. Uh, mm -hmm. I was living in Kitchener, Ontario, which is an hour south of Toronto, uh, three hours by bus. And this is pre-internet. So I, there was one place in Toronto that rented Pancrase VHS tapes. And I would take the bus three hours to Toronto, rent them, come back home, copy them, and then go back again to return them. That's how much I love this, this organization. But never thought I would, you know, never dreamed that I would end up fighting there. I ended up bumping into an agent named Phyllis Lee at a, at a pro wrestling show in Detroit, and she, she actually got me over there where I totally didn't belong. I, I had no training to speak of, no competitive experience, but I got there. And they, uh, it, within the context of losing my first fight, they saw something in me and invited me to live at the dojo. So I knew who the major players were. I knew Fanaki, I knew Yanagisawa, I, I knew who Suzuki was, and knew that he was not to be messed with. Uh, then you meet the man in person, and yeah, he's got this black aura around him, even when he's being very nice, and he is a very nice guy, but it's very easy to see, uh, I, I like to say he's got basilisk eyes, you know, he's, he's very got a very reptilian thing going on where you can tell that if you give him a reason he will hurt you very badly and he will do it with, uh, with great ability and with great pleasure. He genuinely enjoys hurting people, but not undeserving individuals. You got to put yourself in that position. So 
I go into the dojo knowing this and avoiding the hell out of Suzuki right away. Most of Ken Shamrock's guys would avoid him too. They used to call him the evil Keebler elf. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one day I was just, uh, we, we were left to our own devices to, to train ourselves and Suzuki came over and tapped me on the shoulder and um, pointed at himself, pointed at me, and then pointed at the ring with an inquisitive look on his face. And I just, my spirits fell through the floor. I'm like, oh <laughs> my God, no, please. Uh, I've, I've seldom been as scared as I was at that moment. But I also noticed that all the other fighters were kind of looking at me out of the corner of their eye to see what I was going to do. And I thought, you know, I, I, I made a commitment to come here and they paid to bring me here. And, and like the young boys are all cooking my food and washing my clothes, which I totally don't deserve. You know, this is a time to, to at least try to earn some of that. And I got in the ring, and uh, that was 21 years ago, and I vividly remember it like it's yesterday. It was the most excruciatingly painful 30 minutes of my life. Uh, to say that he tortured me would not be exaggerating. Uh, now, he had multiple opportunities to cripple me and multiple opportunities to do permanent damage. And I actually had a freshly torn bicep from fighting Masakatsu Fanaki a couple of weeks before, and he avoided that. But he... He hurt me in ways that I have never been hurt uh, in a grappling context ever. Uh, and at the end of that 30 minutes, I, I, you know, I was bleeding all over the mat. At one point, I had to leave the mat and have a cut packed with crazy glue because I was bleeding so, so heavily. Uh, he kneed me in the face at one point, even though we weren't supposed to be striking. Uh, no, almost knocked me out. And uh, yeah, at the end of all that, uh, he said, okay, enough. And I thought, oh, thank God. And you know, I bowed and I was about to leave. And he put his hand on my arm and said, no, 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 no. Now, questions. And he sat with me for 90 minutes and went over technique and helped me to get better. So that's the kind of guy Suzuki is. Like I, I put myself in that position where I said I want to be a fighter. And so he thought, okay, you're going to show me how much you want to be a fighter. But if you don't die and if you don't quit, then I'm going to invest my time in you. And uh, he's been a very good friend of mine ever since. And uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, he, he's kind of – he's a very dichotomous guy because he's a very nice guy and he's a very gracious guy. And, and if you don't give him a reason to, you've got no reason to be scared of him. But at the same time, he's an unsettling guy for most people to be around because you get that sense that I only need to give this guy one reason. And uh, then I will have one of the most lethal people in the world ripping me limb from limb. Yeah, right. I think like even to people listening that are more familiar with what he does recently, I think like everybody in that Suzuki Gun group are very much like of that same mindset. You know, he clearly sort of chooses you know, even in a pro wrestling context, like he, he chooses his people very closely and like, it, you know, it makes so much sense that I think all of those people are, are of a type certainly, you know? Um, <clears throat> yeah. But uh, I mean, to, to get back to Inoki and, and Hase, which was another like sort of, uh, fairly brief match. I don't, I don't know whether you've seen it. Um, but like a lot of the, the, the deal with like this final countdown was that he was gradually sort of getting more and more worn down. Like if you see all of these matches as a whole, like, you know, Inoki is gradually getting pushed uh, sort of more and more as he tries to get his, his, his win back on the wins back on a bunch of people, I guess, really. But, um, you know, this was kind of before it started, but like you had that such a, a really big feel of still, Inoki, I mean, like he he used to have the sort of martial arts belt, and this was this was after that because he was he was semi-retired at, at this point. But um, a very sort of kind of that that confluence between shoot and work style again, like very early on with with Inoki's a bunch of Inoki's offense was just early on, like he clinches in like this this rear naked choke, and and there's this point where like Hase. Either he's legitimately not gloopy for a bit, or you know he's he's selling it incredibly because like a good sort of minute or so is Hase just being unconscious on the mat, mm. um, you know, and then he he comes you know you know uh, Hase comes back and he gets a, a couple of those those great Uranages. Um and the sort of the end is more sort of traditional pro wrestling Inoki, you know, he, he gets in a couple of enzigiris and then the uh, the octopus hold to, to sort of win. Um, but you definitely sort of see where Inoki's passions are uh, at this point. Yeah, so. it's funny to see how things have looped back around, too, because it's it, uh, you're, you're seeing a lot of that now with people drifting from MMA into pro wrestling. And, and, uh, and now the North American audience is becoming very educated in mixed martial arts because UFC has been around for a while over here. 
um, you know, we, we were behind the behind the curve uh, behind Japan uh, in that knowledge department, but now they're starting to catch up. And uh, I like seeing people like Shayna Baszler and Kyle O'Reilly really doing what Inoki was uh, was pioneering and and mixing legitimate shoot techniques to a, a heavy degree in with uh, into a worked context and still having a heavy pro wrestling element the way you know traditional pro wrestling is known to be uh, is known to be displayed. Yeah, I think like now it it might be we're getting towards, you know, with the sort of guys that you mentioned or or with in a Japanese context, someone like uh, Kushida, perhaps uh, someone like a Zack Sabre mm. Jr. like kind of bringing in, uh, I'm going to be more sort of catch style. Like it's getting now perhaps like that they're, they're finding the balance that Inoki couldn't find where I think like Inoki was... Uh, dead set against, you know, and like he hated sort of Keiji Muto for making Japanese pro wrestling too Americanized, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I think like now we're, we're getting towards the point where there's enough of the, the good parts being lifted and what can we use? Like, we'll, we'll use this, but we'll discard the rest of it. Uh, that, that now I think we're, we're finally getting that balance between pro wrestling and MMA that, that works for everybody. Uh, or works for a broader audience, whereas like the sort of vision of Enochism in the early 2000s was perhaps a little bit too um, sort of too shooty while still MMA was still a thing. So while MMA was exploding, you also had like pro wrestling that was far too MMA in style. And that kind of confused most audiences, I think, or, or put them off the pro wrestling yeah, side. That's an excellent point. And, and no matter how legitimate you make it look working is still working and if you have legit shooting to compare it to you're going to see the differences and the worked product is going to suffer for that you know that, that's why you I, I and i hadn't really thought of that until you brought it up but that's that's probably a, a big reason why groups like uwfi and rings fighting network ended up falling by the wayside is because they had a great looking product when it was worked by people like kiyoshi tamura or siyoshi kasaka you know really good solid workers but uh, you still, you, you compare it to a legit shoot and you'll see the differences and you'll say, well, I'm going to go with the real deal. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that Suzuki said as, as well in an interview that it's, um, it was a cult of personality kind of around most of that, where you had someone like Suzuki, Funaki, uh, Takada as well, like to an extent Ogawa or that, that, that was a little bit different, but like these guys that were, that, that were such huge, had such huge charisma and, and magnetism. That, you know, in the years since we've had sort of, you know, battle arts, battle arts like had a cult following, but like a, a lot of like the, the follow up when they've tried to get rings going again, like it, it's, it hasn't worked because there, there aren't the personalities to attach to them. Yeah, it's, and the straight shoot product is the same way. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people speculating about the future of UFC with Conor McGregor being too big to bully and uh, possibly not being interested in coming back and, you know, if, and if they lose Conor McGregor, you know, he's a guy that uh, if you look at Minoru Suzuki uh, in the early days, you will see a lot of what Conor McGregor is doing now, which is making a straight shoot into a show uh, at the very, very top level. You know, there were multiple guys doing it in Pancrase, but I think, I don't think anybody did it better than Suzuki uh, with facial expressions, with, with judicious bits of selling and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, Conor McGregor does a modern equivalent of that today, and that's part of what made him a superstar, along with his overwhelming charisma, to the point that, yeah, you have your promotion revolving around one or two personalities, and then you're right. What do you do when you don't have those personalities anymore, or when people have decided that they've had enough of that and they want something new? Yeah, and and that's kind of the the sort of atmosphere that surrounded the, the collapse of the second UWF and to sort of segue into April of 92 when we had uh, the PWFG uh, stack of arms uh, show. Um, this would have been sort of after, about a year or so after like the, the second UWF collapsed, which would have been December of 1990. Um, and it's always interesting like that they, they were literally a week out from having were a couple of weeks out from tickets going on sale for their tech second Tokyo Dome show, UWF were. Um, and they had to cancel because there was no UWF to, to go through. Um, and this was when, you know, I mean, there were such a sort of 
lot of big names, you know, Maeda, Takada, Funaki and Suzuki being being the main guys, Fujiwara to an extent still. Um but they were all under one roof, kind of a lot of egos under one roof as well, which are, which I can think was kind of part of the the issues here. Um, but then everybody was was splintered all of a sudden. So like Takada was heading up UWFI, uh, Maeda going to to rings, and then Suzuki and Funaki like still under the the Fujiwara kind of arm, and that sort of sparked PWFG, and it, it looked. At, uh, for a, a moment there, Paul, that the PWFG was going to be the biggest out of those uh, four, uh, out of those sort of three promotions because they had the UWF, they were given the UWF name at first and then they sort of let, let that sort of trademark go. Um, and they had the, the big sponsorship from Megan A Super, which was like the, the SWS connection. And, and we talked a lot about SWS in, in our last episode. But uh, yeah, it it seemed like Fujiwara Fujiwara Gumi was was going to be the the bigger name than UWFI and and Rings, but really it collapsed primarily because Suzuki and Funaki left and said, well, hey, you know, this really is a result of the reactions to this stack of arms card. We can give more of a sort of fight legitimate fight based uh, with some working elements. Uh, you know, we can really make this work. And this show kind of almost directly birthed Pancrase. Yeah, it, uh, it surprised me to to learn how big PWFG had gotten because I'd only heard about them, uh, you know, with uh, the odd mention from a person here and there when I went to Japan. In fact, I remember when I went to the dojo, I was asking the young boys, they had a huge archive of tapes and I, I ended up watching them all before I came home. But at one point, one of them gave me a PWFG tape, and I felt like hugging and kissing the guy. I couldn't believe it, <laughs> because even at that point, you know, it had obviously faded into almost obscurity. And I put this tape in, and I was I I had a very basic knowledge of the company, and I'm looking at watching and saying, "Oh my God, you know, what Suzuki was there, and Fanaki was there, and Ken Shamrock was there, and you know that that was the genesis of Pancrase. And and if you you really should, I think people really should acknowledge Pancrase as the bridge between pro wrestling and modern mixed martial arts well then if you're going to acknowledge that then pwfg deserves its credit for lighting the fire that uh, ended up being pancreas because yeah I mean, if you pack the tokyo dome you're definitely uh, you've definitely captured lightning in a bottle if only for a short period yeah <clears throat> i mean i don't know whether packed is the right word at this well, point how, what was the attendance in that show uh geez well they announced Twenty five thousand, so probably a, a good deal less than that. So okay, okay. well, I, I stand corrected. I, I again been hitting the head a lot. I was I was misremembering <laughs> the attendance figures. Well, I think like uh, part of it as well. You, you're looking at kind of an economic downturn at, at the start of this as as one reason, and still like a lot of bad air and stink around um around mechanic super like so sws had collapsed uh the private the previous year which was um you know mechanic super's like pro wrestling promotion so like this was um you know as we said before if you want to see like the like the bubble economy of, of japan in action um an eyeglasses company and opticians um, had their own wrestling federation because <laughs> <laughs> because the chairman was a, a huge money mark or whatever, um, and just like the establishment of SWS, you had a very vocal anti SWS community because um, they were a black ship. They went out and recruited. They just stole poached talent from from everywhere they could and threw money at them. Uh, so they were they were money pro wrestling was the um, was the Tarzan Yamamoto pro, uh, pro Wrestling Weekly kind of assessment of them? Um, if I could interject and... one thing before we move on, I do want to give SWS credit for one thing, and that's introducing me to the uh, the knowledge that Rick Martel could actually he could actually go as a, a grappler, which yeah. I didn't know until I watched an SWS card, and he he had what I believe was a fifteen or twenty minute long shoot style match with Naoki Sano. Mm. Uh, who would who was a big star in UWFI and, and uh, I think he's still going with Noah, is he not? Yeah, um, he's, he still wrestles. Yeah, yeah, but a very very solid shoot style worker. And 
Uh, Martel was in there with him, and they, it was pretty much all Matt action, and Martel was right there. So uh, uh, props to Rick Martel. You know, I, I gained a lot of respect for his uh, grappling abilities, which I already I respected his his pro wrestling style, but his shoot style grappling abilities I gained a lot of respect for after seeing that match. There's a lot of SWS is very very good. You know, what I mean? like they sort of started with this um, this motto of, of straight and strong, and it, it was like kind of like you said, like a lot of. You know, like Fujiwara, the connection with Fujiwara, like so, he was like leading this this group of of shooters or whatever. Um, and then you had like Tenyu was there, sort of representing the sort of all Japan style. They were bringing Ultimo Dragon over, so I mean, it was a very um, hybrid wrestling style that was like very kind of exciting. Um, and what kind of sullies that almost is that you know. The, the guy in charge of Megane Super was, was such a, a money mark that he was determined to run in the Tokyo Dome. Um, and, you know, the, he was told, there's no way we can run in the Tokyo Dome. You know, we can't <laughs> sell out Yokohama Arena. Like, we're not going to run in the Tokyo Dome. And so the, the orders were, were just book people that can draw the house. And that's it. Like, he was dead set on doing it. And that's what started the, the WWF connection. And that mm. first, that, the second Tokyo Dome show, I think, was pretty good. But that first Tokyo Dome SWS, WWF show was primarily a wwf show and it was the it, most of it was the drizzling shits you know because like it was just <laughs> it, it was wwf guys that were you know knackered and they they didn't want to do anything they knew it wasn't going to be on on tv in any sort of significant sense in in america or whatever and they they just yeah they, they were really phoning it in um but there was there's a lot to like in, in sws uh but really at this point you know the the sort of bloomers off the rose in in terms of of SWS as a promotion they were they were going downhill very very fast and the recession was setting in and they they really didn't have much money for promotion or anything else and so they didn't really draw a, a particularly strong house and like if you uh, if you watched like I watched the VHS version of this and um, yeah twenty five thousand I think is generous just sort of listening to the sort of crowd reactions um and the fact that it's so dark <laughs> mm. they just sort of uh, really shut the lighting off on the on the upper tiers it's it's very difficult to see the the crowd on this one um but it was headlined by uh fanaki and fanaki and morris smith which was meant to be the um the uwf tokyo don't match uh, that was uh, said to be Fanaki and, Mar and Morris Smith, and then uh, Fanaki uh, broke his wrist, and that's when you had Minoru Suzuki take his place. Um, so yeah, this uh, this was kind of there was a nice symmetry to this. Of finally, we're going to do the the Tokyo Dome uh, main event where where Fanaki actually gets this match, and they went to a, a five round sort of uh, time limit draw. But uh, what are your You've you've talked to us about uh, Suzuki. What are your collections of recollections of Masakatsu Fanaki? Um, again, mainly fear based in the outset, uh, because uh, I, as I said, I, I had no business being in Pancrase in the first place, and uh, uh, pretty much I learned how to be a fighter backwards. Uh, most most people start at a young age and they start learning, and they they fight at variously uh, more and more difficult levels of competition until they work their way up to wherever they're going to go, whether that's you know, regional, national, world level. I started at the world level with no competitive experience against, uh, my first fight was against Ryushi and Nagazawa, who was ranked number three in the world. That was my debut fight. And uh, I thought that was it. You know, I, my main goal was I wanted to see Japan. So I was willing to take an ass kicking to go over there. I got to fight in Pancras as the first Canadian there, which was a great honor. And I didn't die in the ring. So for me, it was a, a resounding success. I came home and thought that was going to be it. And then uh, Phyllis Lee, the agent who hooked me up with that trip, called me up a week later and said uh, she was losing her mind. And she said, uh, they want you to come back and, and live in their dojo and train with them. And I said, obviously, yes, I would like to do that. She said, oh, yes. And, and uh, your next opponent's already set out. He's, he's requested to fight you. And I said, who is it? And she said, it's Masakatsu Funaki, who at the time was the reigning pan uh, king of Pancras, the world champion. So... Yeah, less than a month after my debut fight, I went back and I fought Fanaki. And uh, it was uh, it lasted about five minutes. Uh, I, I'm proud to say I laid one or two good ones on him uh, while he was in the process of dismantling me. And uh, I ended up uh, getting caught with the top wrist like a tearing my bicep. 
So uh, I stuck around and trained anyway. And uh, he was always extremely gracious with me. In fact, I remember when the arm tore, he heard it go. And he didn't even celebrate his victory. Like immediately, as soon as they rang the bell, you know, he was asking me, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's tapping my arm. And uh, anytime I rolled with him in the dojo, he would stay away from the arm as all the guys did. And he, he was always very, very cool with me. Uh, but it was it was great to be able to live at the dojo for a month and a half because Fanaki was was very taciturn and, and very uh, very difficult to read. Uh, he not an overly emotional guy, so I got to be at the dojo living there twenty four seven and see him during the the few times that he would let his guard down and kind of show another side of himself. And and one of those times uh, was a day that I'm not sure who brought it in. But somebody brought a pellet pistol, an air pistol that fired BB pellets into the dojo. And uh, this is not good news for any of the lower tier fighters, because uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the hierarchy of a Japanese dojo, you generally have a caste system of three levels. There's the the top, top guys of whom Suzuki and Fanaki were the, the top of the top. And then you have the mid-level guys who uh, who are people that probably came in as, as lower level guys and graduated up. And they're answerable to the top guys. And then there are the young boys who are essentially slaves. And they cook all the food, they wash the clothes, they clean the dojo, and they're subject to uh, pretty much relentless hazing from everybody else. And they eventually graduate upward. So, uh, you know, anything like a pellet pistol makes its way into the dojo, you know the young boys are going to end up on the wrong end of it sooner or later. And um, at one point I was laying in my, in my room that I shared with uh, Keiichiro Yamamiya, who was a mid-level fighter. And I heard this pop, 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 clang, 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 pop, 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 clang, clang, clang. And I, I wondered what was going on. I opened the door and Fanaki is standing there with the pistol in his hand and, and a, a small smile on his face, which for him was an outrageous display of emotion. <laughs> and he is firing the pistol across the dojo at uh, Daisuke Watanabe, who uh, was one of the young boys. who was trying to work out on the lat pull down machine. And <laughs> Being a young boy, he doesn't have the option of just running away. He's got to sit there and take it. So he's he's trying to get through his workout while Fanaki is literally shooting him. And uh, it got worse because uh, after that, then uh, Kazuo Takahashi, uh, also known as Yoshiki Takahashi, who's a great guy. He's, he was one of my – I left that dojo considering him a friend. but And I, I mean no disrespect in saying this. Uh, he was the closest thing to a street thug out of all the uh, top-tier – Pancras guys. He was a good technical fighter, but he was also just a blood and guts, you know, bare knuckle brawler. He's a really, really tough guy. And uh, my roommate Yamamiya had been his young boy, had been his apprentice until he graduated up to mid-level status, but he's still answerable to Takahashi. If Takahashi does something, Yamamiya's just got to eat it. And so it's kind of a big brother, little brother dynamic. dynamic. So after Funaki put the gun down, um, Takahashi picked it up. And that meant that poor Yamamiya was running for his life for the entire rest of the day. It was just basically a game of paintball but with pellets. And only one guy had a gun for the entire day. The, uh, Yamamiya's hiding behind stuff in the dojo. At one point, I walked out of our shared room. And I turn around. I look right down the barrel of it. And it's Takahashi. And he pulls the gun away. and goes, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's not you I want to shoot in the face. It's Yamamiya. So uh, yeah, that definitely an eventful day when that gun made its way into the Pancras Dojo. <laughs> yeah, like in in Japan, obviously firearms, legitimate firearms, are, are very sort of heavily restricted. Hardly anybody has as a gun gun. But like, uh, yeah, airsoft as as they call it here, like the the BB guns are very very popular. So uh, yeah. <laughs> not with Yamamiya, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's interesting. Like um, the Suzuki match here. Was against I I can't uh, very sort of Russian Russian name. Uh, he was he was against David uh, Gobetishvili. Like everybody's name, I can just sort of write when I'm writing the book. Gobetishvili, <laughs> I believe, is pronounced. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I've a, I'll get a Russian friend. I'm going to run it by her and find out. <laughs> but like to see the last time we sort of uh, talked about Minoru Suzuki on on this this podcast the last time he sort of came up in the book was that that uwf show and it's it's really sort of fascinating to see the evolution of minoru suzuki where um there was a really good documentary about the the second generation the u cosmos uh tokyo dome show where like minoru suzuki is kind of a, a central character 
uh, to it because like Fanaki gets injured and then they have this this match where uh, Minoru Suzuki uh, it was Suzuki against Yoji Anjo uh, to get the the shot against Morris Smith and then so Suzuki has this this long journey there um, you know has this this match with with Smith and uh, you know it's it's quite even from from me with with a pro wrestling. Uh, mindset uh you know it's it's a good narrative to that match you, you kind of have suzuki coming from from underneath and trying to out grapple uh smith who's, who's very much a, a striker you know he's very much a kickboxing guy at the time and um you know suzuki loses and is just in floods of tears like after after losing just like all the emotion of finally getting there and he's like painted as this sort of very vulnerable sort of figure in the end you know he gets backstage he, he collapses in in tears like the the effort the exertion kind of the the pride and the agony kind of thing and then suzuki in this match he's very much like closer to like the suzuki we, we know and fear you know he's he's um in the in the all white you know he's he's got the the towel over his head like just looks mean he lands like this this inside uh, he lands a, a kick to the to the inside of of his opponent's leg and just has the sickest smile <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I've got something there. And it's only when when he wins, like that's when like he lets that sort of facade slide a little bit because like he's jumping up in the air, like he's very, like he's all all grins and and sort of very sort of uh, baby face-ish but um yeah you can see oh there's there's Minoru Suzuki coming out in this one yeah it it was this was a great opponent to uh to establish that to kind of get Suzuki back in the mix at the very top level again after after a loss that he showed to be so devastating to himself too because I it all it amazed me when I researched this card the level of some of the people they brought in it also showed how little uh, Russian athletes were making at the time is that any mm. opportunity to make money if I got to go to Japan I got to deliberately lose to somebody mm. uh, if there's a check involved I'll do it and at the time of this match Gobejishvili was uh, he had won the world championship twice including just two years previous he was the reigning uh, Olympic uh, yeah, reigning Olympic champion at the time he had won the gold in 1988 in Seoul and he was about to go back to the Olympics where he would make the podium again with a bronze medal so this is a, a, a elite, top, top, top level freestyle wrestler in his prime, still willing to go and be told you're going to lose this match and and take it. And so I think it it's a commentary to how few opportunities Russian athletes had, even the best of the best, and also a commentary on the shrewdness of booking in groups like this, where they were very opportunistic in a good way. I mean that as a compliment, and it was it was a great way to further establish Minoru Suzuki as a star by putting him up against somebody with the amazing credentials of this guy. Yeah, and, and to your point, like that that goes back to the the first Tokyo Dome show in, in the 89 Battle Satellite where the the ticket sort of sales had sort of lagged like immediately before the show and then there was a lot of like speculation at the time of is pro wrestling really a a stadium attraction was kind of a, a lot of the the questions being asked around that era and, and so when Inoki started this uh, sort of deal with with Russia um part of it i mean it was spun as we're going to get a lot of mainstream headlines like right before the the sort of Berlin Wall falls down um and part of it again was Inoki sort of starting his political career going and him saying look how i can reach behind the iron curtain kind of thing um but uh really i mean like the the skeptical side of it was the yeah i mean they were cheap talent to fill out the card you know and they, they were willing to to come over for a, a very very low uh payoff and and yeah that that's certainly that's uh, that's definitely that a promoter's dream you know yeah you can get somebody that that level. He was he was the best freestyle heavyweight freestyle wrestler in the world at the time, and you yeah. could probably get him for for relative pennies and have him put your guy over. So it was it was just incredible timing, and uh, I think probably did uh, you know. And if anybody knew how to capitalize on that amazing opportunity, it would be like a guy like Suzuki. And as you've explained, he did just that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's sort of just just finally out of, out of interest here that this was. Uh, also, when you had uh, Ken Shamrock or, or Wayne Shamrock on on this card um, against uh, Don Nakaya Nilsson, who was kind of, 
Um, I don't know. I, I think like ten years ago, for New Japan fans, like Don Don Nielsen was sort of fairly active with with New Japan uh, early on. Had kind of a, a famous match with um, Kiji Yamada, who who went on to be Jushin Thunder Liger. Um, but uh, yeah, Nielsen, who's sadly passed away last year, um, against uh, against Shamrock, and and this was really the match that sort of had Shamrock on board with, with the Pancrase thing and like uh, this, this idea of, of MMA just just huge on a on a card that has very sort of quiet muted crowd for, for most of it and perhaps crowd not super familiar with, with the talent involved for this uh, for this crowd to be so behind Shamrock um, especially as a foreigner like that that was it was a real big surprise to me uh, of how over Shamrock was with, with this crowd um, and this was another of, of those three matches that, that sparked the Pancrase idea. Yeah, out of uh, the, I mean, you see a lot of, uh, I've been told that it was Inoki that initially coined the term mixed martial arts, and, and uh, I think he and Maida were, were probably the two that were strongest on bringing in single stylists to be in a work context, but people who weren't really familiar with working. You know, bring in kickboxers, bring in judoka, bring in and other people, and and it would serve its purpose. But at the same time, like even a guy like Willem Ruska, who's an incredible judoka, and and definitely you know, got people over by being in the ring with them. He wasn't a great worker. Whereas Nielsen, uh, he wasn't the best worker in the world by any stretch. But for a kickboxer coming into the the worked environment, I I found that he did a creditable job of getting his opponents over, of, of making it look as close to legitimate as he could given his skill set. And uh, I, I think in this match, he was, he was a good guy to pair Shamrock with to advance Shamrock. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Shamrock at the time, I mean, he had a very distinct visual difference, you know, I think, as, yes. as well. Um, where, I mean, uh, you know, perhaps a, a lot of those under underneath guys, you, you had Joe Malenko on that card and uh, Jerry Flynn as well, who do also, you know, uh, active pro wrestlers, but uh, Ken Shamrock was was this very sort of American ideal of pro wrestling, you know. Oh yeah, and, was, and, 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 mm. oh, sorry. In uh, UFC, it's it's been mentioned more than once that one of the big ingredients of UFC success is that before people were actually shown what a real fight looks like. They would think, okay, what does a badass look like? And they think about a 90s action movie star. And that's what Ken Shamrock looked like. He looked like an action figure. He looked like a badass with the big muscles that people thought you had to have to be an effective fighter at the time. So, yeah, he was a walking stereotype, but he also had the goods. Now, if you in a real fight, I would have easily bet on Joe Malenko to tie Ken Shamrock in knots. And, in, in fact, I would imagine he did while while they were training together. But, um yeah, you, you look at Ken Shamrock and, and you see, uh, especially with 90s sensibilities, you see the superhero that you expect to see in a superhero mixed style fighter. Mm, yeah. All right. So, I mean, that was uh, Stack of Arms 92. Uh, going on towards uh, the next year in, in 93, there was there was only New Japan ran the Dome. And throughout the, sort of 93, one thing I was I was curious to ask you was like, this was... The the rise of we touched on him before, but the the real rise of, of Shinya Hashimoto in in ninety three in later of ninety three when when he he sort of had his first uh, chase chase at the title there. But um, you know one thing often you know Hashimoto was was wrapped up with with UWF and and UWFI and like um, you know this this long held uh, you know issues with them there was, there was a lot of like sort of passive aggression between UWFI and, and New Japan for, for reasons we'll get into yeah maybe not uh, so passive too <laughs> yeah well yeah it, it was it came down to them wanting to work with with New Japan New Japan being very very difficult to work with and then that sort of sparked UWFI booking uh, Vader just as a massive fuck you to New Japan basically um, mm. and then sort of throwing money behind having this this huge 100 million yen tournament and inviting Hashimoto to just just come over and, and try it but uh, one thing I'm, I'm really curious about was what was when you were later on in in Pancrase what was what were your what were the thoughts there within Pancrase of guys like Shinya Hashimoto who are depicted as like the the hard asses of like the of the the worked end of the spectrum in New Japan? Like, was there a respect there, or was there kind of a, a disdain towards uh, guys like that? 
Well, it was funny. I I've never understood why, and and I, I don't mean that I don't mean to in any way demonize Phyllis Lee, but one of the things she told me before I went to Japan that always baffled me was she said that I had to conceal the fact that I was a worker because if the Pancras guys found out I was a worker, they would send me home because they hated pro wrestling so much. Then I got there, and they were watching Inoki matches, and they were watching mm. ECW matches, and they were watching like. The, these guys were pro wrestlers, and, and they loved pro wrestling. That being said, uh, I always knew that they considered themselves not just superior to all the workers, but superior to all the other shoot groups. Um, and uh, so they would go to – I remember at one point uh, uh, Ensign Inouye was fighting Zulu, uh, who had his famous fight with Hicks and Gracie way back in the day. And they all went. They all went to the shooto show. But they thought we're better than the shooto guys. And uh, I remember uh, – Takaku Fuke, also known as uh, Yusuke Fuke, uh, came in one time with a rings tape of the most recent Rings Fighting Network show. And they put it on, they all watched it. But before he put it in the machine, I said, what is that? He said, oh, it's rings. I said, is it good? And you, he laughed and went, no. <laughs> but they watched it because they, they still, so I, I got the sense they still have respect for workers and shooters of other companies. They just thought, we are definitely the best. And so, especially with workers, where workers are concerned, because they had done it, like a lot of these guys had done professional pro wrestling. I mean, you know, guys like Suzuki and Tanaki came out of the, the New Japan Dojo. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think they always had the sense that uh, a lot of them had the sense that we have done what you've done and we can do what you've done and we can do it well. But you can't do what we can do. And mm -hmm. I think that might have been hammered home because I was in Japan during the first um, Ogawa versus uh, Hashimoto match. Mm. where Ogawa reportedly went into business for himself and the way the match played out, I would imagine that's exactly what happened. And, you know, Ogawa being an Olympic silver, medal silver medalist in judo, if he decides he's going to do something, it's, it's not a lot of people that can stop him. And uh, so, you know, that really, really, really hurt Hashimoto's image for a while. And he had to completely reinvent himself to come back and, and be the old Hashimoto again. And due credit to him, he managed to do that. But uh, I think that probably hammered the point home a little bit further that, okay, you guys are good workers, but we're something else. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, it it sort of sparked something in my, my memory was like the, in sort of 95 was like one of the, the rare cases where they were all under one roof because um, the, the Shupro magazine hosted their Tokyo Dome Bridge of Dreams card where it was like a whole bunch of wrestling promotions everybody from from new japan down to the indies and pancras were having like one match each on this uh sort of all-star dream card thing mm -hmm. and um so suzuki was up i can't think off the top of my head who he was uh who he was against but like they were, were right after uh iwa japan which was like the, the <laughs> so cactus jack and the headhunters and terry funk um and so yeah it's it's really funny there was like a suzuki interview afterwards saying like you know but he was talking very much in his post-match interview about how he was happy that he got the crowd to react like he was talking about it very much from a sort of uh working standpoint but then he was saying yeah the, the only thing that was really hard was that there was still a lot of blood on the match so when we went to ground like we were slipping all over the place <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point. If you were going to put this, uh, the structure of the card together, you might want to save the messiest matches for close to the end. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get into that uh, in a later episode. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much, uh, Paul, for, for coming over. This was uh, some really great, great insights and some great stories. Um, this, I think that the bulk of people listening to this will be listening to it uh, sort of much later on in the year, sort of sometime towards the summer. So without getting too time sensitive, is there anything you want to promote on the way out here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I will still be promoting these companies because I believe in them very much. I've been doing it for years. Uh, I want to plug the Roots of Fight clothing company, uh, just a, a fantastic clothing company, rootsoffight.com, and, and their Roots of Wrestling line. Uh, is uh, continuing to expand. They've got uh, Andre the Giant merchandise, including some stuff that references Andre's time in Japan, uh, Rey Mysterio stuff, Hart Brothers stuff, and uh, and uh, more coming out. So rootsoffight.com. And, and also uh, plug my book series, uh, When We Were Bouncers, Volumes 1 and 2. 
which is famous and accomplished people, including um, MMA superstars such as Don Fry, such as Ensign Inoue, Ken Shamrock, Boss Rutten, uh, also actors, uh, stuntmen, WWE wrestlers, and so on, relating their time working as bouncers in nightclubs and arenas all over the world. So if uh, you want to check that out, it's uh, it's good, easy reading. Uh, when we were bouncers dot com. Cool, thank you. And uh, yes, of course, this this podcast is brought to you by um, Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome. Uh, go to eggshellsbook.com uh, for more on that. Uh, you can follow Paul uh, on Twitter at MaulerMMA. Uh, I am at ReasonJP. And next time we'll be looking at 1993 uh, with uh, the artist of Eggshells, the, the person who's put together some uh, fantastic art in the book and uh, just happens to be my brother as well. So I have to be nice. Uh, Matt Charlton will be <laughs> joining us uh, to look at 1993. And uh, yeah, Paul, thanks again. This, this has been a great, uh, great hour here man i can't thank you enough i have had an absolute blast okay thanks